Shalom. Welcome to Rivkush, a CJN podcast. Today, I'm very excited to say we are Rivkush at Limud. Very cool. Very awesome. Also, I am over the moon to have Susanna Heschel here with us today. Susanna is amazing. She is the Eli M. Black Distinguished Professor of Jewish Studies at Dartmouth College. Her scholarship focuses on Jewish-Christian relations, history of biblical scholarship, and the history of anti-Semitism. She is the author of numerous publications, recipient of the National Jewish Book Award, and has edited several books, including Morale, Grandeur, and Spiritual Audacity, a collection of essays by her father, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, a key Jewish voice during the civil rights movement. So welcome, Susanna. Thank you so much, Rivka. Thank you for your warm welcome. It's great to be with you and great to be at Limud. Limud is always fun. So I hear you've been pretty busy at Limud today. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> How did it go? It was great. I did a discussion with a colleague of mine from Dartmouth, Tarek Elaris, a friend who is the chair of the Middle Eastern Studies Program at Dartmouth. And we've taught a seminar together called Arabs, Jews, and Constructions of Modernity. And so we had a conversation uh, in the last hour about parallels in the experiences of the modern world between Jewish and Arabs, Jews and Arabs. Yeah, so we, we'll, we'll delve into a wee bit of that. But what I really want to start off with, I want to know you. And we did have the pleasure of meeting, and I believe it was in regards to shared legacies. And we, we sat on a panel together. And for those of you who aren't aware of Shared Legacies, is this wonderful documentary. And I think the best way to sum it up, and, and Susanna, you can correct me if I miss something big, but it really does discuss that connection of African-Americans and the Jewish community during the civil rights movement in the United States. And of course, a key proponent of the civil rights movement was Dr. Um, Rabbi Heschel, who we all know, and I, and I mean, one of the things I remember during the crisis, one of many crises that we've had, but in particular, the murder of George Floyd, people were always speaking about how Jews were connected with African Americans and how we marched with, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. and uh, Rabbi Heschel and this documentary showed how it was a symbiotic relationship, how it was really a relationship. And so I would like to um, to delve into that a bit more with you being the daughter of Rabbi Heschel. How how did it affect you? Because you you are a part of it. You're you're you were his daughter. You saw what he was going through. You know, you were thrown into it, whether you wanted to be or not. You know, you were a part of it. So can you elaborate on how as a young girl, how did that how did how did that um, manifest for you? Well, first of all, uh... Yes, when I was growing up, the civil rights movement was very much part of my home and the conversation at the dinner table. But it also made me realize, the first of all, that the Bible could soften hardened hearts. Uh, that Dr. King spoke verses from the Bible, especially from the prophets, that made a huge impact on everyone, including me. I, I felt moved to tears 
in a way, I fell in love with the Bible thanks to Dr. King. And I, I don't think that would have happened solely from Hebrew school, let's say. Wow. <laughs> but also my father's friendship with Dr. King was important and with so many of the civil rights leaders. And they were very kind to me, very, very lovely, even though I was just a child and nobody. Uh, but they treated me with a lot of warmth. And I have to just add one thing. My father was involved with lots of different kinds of people, uh, Jews and non-Jews and the civil rights movement, the Catholic community, the Vatican Council and Protestants and so on. But really, the civil rights leaders to this day are so warm to me. They embrace me. I was invited to a reunion of civil rights leaders a couple of years ago. Every time I see Andrew Young or Jesse Jackson, they, Reverend who passed away, Reverend C.T. Vivian, they hug me and they tell me, I, your father was so wonderful and we appreciate him. And President Obama said to me, your father is our hero. And I, I mention this because it tells us something about the gratitude, about the kinds of people who were involved in the civil rights movement. They went through training in nonviolence, which was not just training about you don't hit somebody back if they hit you was a way of changing a way of thinking it was a training of the heart and the mind of the soul there are people who can be great express gratitude 60 years later they're still grateful it's a different kind of person a different way of being a human being in this world and it's very precious to me that I knew those people as a child and I still do as an adult <laughs> wow. I, yeah. And I can tell you that it was also very clear that if we're talking about equality and justice, that applies to women as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. There was something that you mentioned that made me smile when you said about Martin Luther King, um, your love of the Bible came from what was it you know I, I smile because I'm thinking to myself but your father was a rabbi <laughs> yet you you know you attributed a, a new a fondness of the bible from Martin Luther King Jr and so what was it was it a different take on it like what was it no I mean obviously my father my father influenced me greatly and mm -hmm. um, in a way that was so much a part of the fabric of who I I was and who I am to this day, that it's sometimes hard for even for me to distinguish what was my father, what's what's me. Um, and no, I, I would say that Dr. King spoke to a national audience. And in that sense, I, I mean, I, let me just point something out. My father was in Germany from 1927 to 1938. So he was there when Hitler came to power. So he saw Protestant theologians who said that the Old Testament is a Jewish book and has no place in the Christian Bible. And they threw it out. They said Jesus wasn't a Jew, he was an Aryan, a German. And then my father comes to this country and Dr. King, in his major speeches, you'll see quotes from Amos, from Isaiah, from the Hebrew prophets, from Moses and the Exodus. Not so much Jesus. In his sermons in church, yes. Right. But there was something extraordinarily ecumenical about Dr. King and his embrace of the Bible. So I think for me also, hearing a Christian affirm the Hebrew Bible in that way was very moving to me. And I think it was moving to a lot of Jews. I think it helped, it helped us heal our souls after the war, after what was done to us. 
to have that embrace from him. And you know, <laughs> I've written about this. My father really wasn't quite white, as you Elaborate. know. Elaborate for our audience. He wasn't, he wasn't someone who was you know, part of the Jewish establishment. In fact, okay. he criticized, as he put it, the Jewish establishment. He was someone who said Judaism is a religion of dissent. And that was what his work was all about, dissent. So from my father was not the kind of person who was the, the voice of the ADL or the AJC or one of these. Gotcha. He was someone who would come in and be critical. He would give a talk somewhere to a Jewish group or to a synagogue, and he would tell them what they didn't want to hear. Mm -hmm. It's critical. Because of that criticism, how was he received in the mainstream Jewish community? Mixed. So my father used to say that he felt Protestants understood him better than Jews. Because in those days, there were also Jews who were saying, there is no such thing as Jewish theology. Or somebody once said to me, you know, Jews don't pray. Christians pray. Jews say words. Can you imagine? Okay. No, but okay. <laughs> uh, and it, this also represents a, a rejection, a rejection of Jewishness, a rejection of Jewish thought entirely. Uh, and that's very disturbing. And so my father was trying to go against that, criticize that, trying to expand the way they were people, Jews were thinking about what it is to be Jewish, what is Judaism. And he brought in texts and ideas that people tended, Jews tended to diminish. When I was growing up, for example, we went to the synagogue at the Jewish Theological Seminary where my father taught. And Anything having to do with Jewish mysticism or Hasidism was uh, not to be discussed, not, okay. not to be touched. Okay. Rabbinical student, I remember a rabbi once saying, you know, I spent seven years at the seminary and never once did we talk about God. That's what it was. Okay. And, and even Yiddish was verboten. You know, I was told you have to say Shabbat Shalom. Don't say good Shabbos because they don't like Yiddish. They want Hebrew. Okay. It's a different kind of mentality. Now, of course, that's changed. And I think mm -hmm. it's changed to some extent thanks to my father and what he brought to Jews and said, look, look at this. This is our Jewishness, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. So you there is something I, I've been meaning to ask you because you do a lot of you go to Germany a lot. Um, what is what is your connection? Because other than you did mention that your father was in Germany, is that part of why Germany? I think is what I'm saying is because you've done a lot of work. You've had some grants from German organizations. So what? Why Germany? Why Germany? Because uh, so initially I wanted to go into the field of Hebrew Bible. I was in love with the Bible, and then I discovered biblical scholarship and I felt biblical scholarship was just just awful biblical scholars were asking the wrong questions they had no sense of of the beauty of the text of the the way the text is so inspiring they didn't ask about that and so I once went to sit in on a graduate seminar and it was a verse some verse from the Psalms I don't remember exactly the verse but it was something like the gates of the city sing the praises of the Lord. And the professor said, you know, gates don't sing. So there's a mistake. And so we spent the two hour class explaining how the letters of the words were mixed up, etc. We have to fix it because that's what Bible scholars do. They amend the text, fix it. And at the end, he said, you see, here is how it should read. On the gates of the city were written 
the praises of the Lord. <laughs> I can't do this. This is not, this yeah. is ridiculous. So then I, I was interested in the history of the field of biblical scholarship and what made it the way it is, the sort of pathology of it, an autopsy of it. Mm -hmm. And that really meant looking at the 19th century and to see how the field developed, biblical scholarship, both among Jews and Protestants in Germany. And then I had to learn German. And I learned German at university, but it wasn't good enough. So I got a grant and I went to two months and it was awful. I didn't want to be in Germany. I thought I'll never go again. And then I was invited to give some lectures in East Germany in 1986 for two weeks. And that was extraordinary for me. And I met some amazing people. And the truth is, I met, thank goodness, I met Germans who devoted themselves their whole lives to eradicating anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. And who were far deeper, more deeply involved in that than anyone I knew in America. Right. And that was important. And then I started doing research. I I wrote first a book on Abraham Geiger, a 19th century scholar, but then I worked on the Nazi period. And that meant going to German archives, which was really um, very difficult. That would be incredibly hard, I would think. Yes. And after I, I wrote one book on the Nazi period, and I thought, I'm not going to do this again. Mm -hmm. yeah. I don't know how people can do it. Because it takes, it's it's like, it takes a bit of here. Like, it, it, it takes a bit of you each time, I would think. It just... You know what I mean? Like it just hurts your soul each time. And that's, that's hard. Yes. It's hard. Yes. It's very yeah, hard. Absolutely. So that makes me ask the question though, how's your German? Cause I initially you said that it was eh, now fluent. Yeah. I kind of <laughs> Deutsch. Yeah. You see I all speak in German. I lecture in German. Oh yeah. my goodness. Well, growing up, interestingly enough, um, my best friend her family is, was from Germany and people always said, what an interesting group of people, like just the, the, the opposites, if you will. And um, they, I actually went to Germany on vacation and she used to try and teach me German, but here is my German. Guten Tag, wie geht's? Gut, danke und einen. And I know ein Schollegum. That's it. <laughs> oh, and I can ask for a beer. You got to be able to ask for a beer. Well, I think um, when I was growing up, my parents' friends were all German Jewish refugee scholars. And the table conversation was about first German culture, poets, musicians, philosophers, Jewish and non-Jewish, everyone from Goethe to Rilke. And uh, at the same time, there was a sense of, they felt, they thought Hitler came to power and wouldn't last for more than a few months. It was impossible for a country that was so learned, that was so so cultured, to have someone like that at the helm. But yeah. there was also a way in which they preserved that German culture. They brought it into exile, and they kept it alive. And it was something special for them, German literature, German poetry. So when I was a little girl, I knew the names of all the German philosophers, for example. That was culture uh, for Europeans. When I was growing up, my mother was a pianist and my father and I would stand at the piano and my mother would play Schubert Lieder, Schubert songs, and often from songs that set to music poetry of Goethe and my father and I would, would sing and she would play. So I heard, uh, I heard some of the great pieces of, of literature and some of the great ideas of German culture. And at the same time, of course, I was horrified and, and baffled because this was a genocide committed by people with PhDs. So what does that tell us about the academy? 
she just uh, took my breath for a moment. So that 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 also leads me to, you know, in the past couple of years or so, when a particular um, president was in power, there was a lot of comparisons to Nazi Germany and and so on and so forth. What are your thoughts around that? Because that's what we, especially in Canada, kept hearing Americans saying, look, we have to be careful. It's like the Nazis are in power and he is this person and so on and so forth. What are your views around that? I'm also afraid. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I do see parallels. And I do think that, that the Nazi party was a playbook for Trump. Um, there are differences, of course. But yes, I feel, along with many others, that the commitment to democracy and to liberalism is fading in this world. And I worry very much about that. So I also feel very strongly that this is what we need. Uh, this is, this is a, the, the promise of security for Jews. Uh, and I'm horrified by the assaults on democracy that are coming from the right and also from the left. I'm very upset along with everyone else, by the, the, the anti-Semitic attacks. It was just a reform synagogue in Austin, Texas. Somebody set a fire to the, to the front door and did massive damage. Uh, and this is something that's now happening on a regular basis. So what, what, what should we conclude? Obviously, it would be naive to say, oh, well, it's America, everything will be fine. Now, that's not true. We do see a major assault on things that we took for granted, certainly in my father's lifetime, that American democracy was strong, that we were able to defend ourselves and to defend our institutions. Mm-hmm. The fact that many Jews supported Trump is horrifying to me. The fact that Bibi Netanyahu shook hands with Viktor Orban from Hungary in Jerusalem, that's horrifying to me. I'm very worried about the Abrahamic Accords, for example. I'm worried that actually governments are hanging by a thread that too much of what takes place in our world today is through negotiations of major companies, corporations, multinational corporations, global corporations, that they are really the powers, not the governments. That worries me. And of course, ultimately, the worry is with the military. Will the military retain its loyalty to the Constitution? And we saw that Trump tried to subvert that. Mm-hmm. If we lose that, that's, of course, the end. Uh, and who will, in fact, stand up and defend democracy? I think about the, the situation in Germany when initially there was um, an attempted coup in Berlin and it was the workers who went on strike until the coup ended. They brought it to an end. So what are the forces we have within the country to defend, to defend the country? And when I hear about military people joining a neo-Nazi group or the Ku Klux Klan and so on, I'm very worried. Yeah. And I think I, and you know, Susanna, you must look at it even from a global perspective, because I think that isn't particular to the United States. It may feel that it's more obvious in the United States, but I think we in Canada are experiencing similar things too. It's just that we're, I like to say this about us, and we're, we're, we're polite and kind of low-key about 
almost everything. And, you know, and I say to people, you know, people say, well, at least we're not as racist as the United States, or at least we're not as anti-Semitic as the United States. And I say, well, we're just, we just do it differently. We just do it differently. Yeah. But I think we need to be equally concerned about the direction we're going in. Yes. I, I yes, we we agree about that. Yeah. Um, I would just say that my father was always saying, "Never despair. It's a sin to despair. It's forbidden to despair." He would tell me, uh, and I I think about that often. We mustn't despair. Despair also makes us feel there's nothing we can do, and this is a time when there is in fact something we need to do. So how do we approach people? How do we talk about this? Uh, I, um, it's a loaded question. How do we do it? So it's, we don't have time for everything, but let me just tell you one, one wonderful text from Levi Yitzhak Berdichev, is one of my ancestors, a Hasidic Rebbe, who wrote a text called Gadushas Levi, in which he comments on uh, chapter 10, verse one of uh, the book of Exodus where God tells Moses, Bo el paro ki hechbadati et libo, go to Pharaoh, because I've hardened his heart. Everybody knows that verse. But Levi Yitzhak says, you know, and people are always asking, why would God harden Pharaoh's heart? But Levi Yitzhak says, no, the root of the Hebrew word hard, kaved, mm -hmm. is the root also of the Hebrew word for dignity, kavod, or honor, or glory. Okay. And so Levi Yitzhak says, no, what God is saying in that verse, the way he interprets it, is that God is saying, I have made Pharaoh's heart capable of dignity. And then he points out that a few verses down, I think around verse 17, Pharaoh says, Chatasi, I have sinned. And so Levi Yitzhak says, you know, we don't pay attention to that, that Pharaoh said this, that he admitted he sinned. But that's the sign. In other words, it's not a hard heart that is capable of saying, I have sinned. Right. It's a heart that feels capable of dignity, that has dignity, that can say, yes, I have sinned. That's, that's an expression of a dignified person. So um, one of the things that Trump did was to behave in a way that was very undignified. He robbed people of the aspiration to be dignified. And perhaps that's one of the things, one of many things that we need to do is to re restore a sense of dignity, a sense of the dignity of the country, the mm -hmm. dignity of the people as a group and as individuals. So what Trump did, for example, in mocking people at his rallies, he once mocked a disabled reporter, journalist. What did he do? He tried to take away people's shame. You don't you don't mock someone. It's a shameful thing to do. Right. You do that as a child. But he said, no, no, no. But he took away the shame. He says, it's fine. Make fun of people. Mock people. There's nothing to be ashamed. So he took away the role of shame in inhibiting people. Right. But in that way, taking away shame is also taking away dignity. Absolutely. So I think what Levi Yitzhak is giving us as some advice here is how do we restore dignity? Maybe we need to think about that to restore the importance of dignity. Wow, Susanna, as you're speaking, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm feeling kind of choked up because I think about, you know, I do work around Jews of color and, and I think about 
how people of color have been treated. And it's exactly what you've, you've, you've said. Um, you've made it so clear. P our people of color, their dignity was taken away. And like you said, that what stops us from shaming people was taken away because we see the mocking and the blackface and the making fun and 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 the lackadaisical attitude towards it, which still continues today, you know, that robs my people of dignity. We see it with my other people, Jewish people. We see the mocking, the the caricatures that and the almost almost unspoken approval that it's okay to to mock us about being frugal or and, and and those jokes that people make which strips us of our dignity yes and a few years ago i was asked to write an article on human dignity in judaism for a big thick i don't know 800 page volume different articles about human dignity i was struck that mine was the only article that raised the issue of race and racism uh, and one of the things that I came to realize in looking at some Jewish sources was that although we say everybody is born with dignity and there's an inviolable human dignity, actually, dignity is something that comes to you only when you convey it. That is, for example, when someone dies in Jewish law, as you know, you never leave a dead body alone. Someone is always with the the body with the person reciting psalms. The body is washed in a very careful and respectful way. Now, a dead body doesn't know that it's being treated with dignity. It's dead. Mm -hmm. But in treating that body with dignity, in conveying dignity, even to a body that is unaware, we create dignity for ourselves. We become people of dignity. Absolutely. So it's how we treat another person. And I, I realized, of course, that that's at the heart of my father's articles and, and speeches, especially about racism and during the civil rights era, how he spoke. To treat another person in a contemptuous fashion is to denigrate oneself. To treat another person with dignity is to become a person of dignity. And so that's very much to your point. So... Um, I also read, interestingly enough, that you applied for rabbinical school. Yes. So, yeah, I was like, wow, not surprised, but I want to hear what led you to do that. And because <laughs> we know this, well, really, what led you to do that? Also, given that women weren't being admitted, but you still, am I correct? They weren't being admitted yes. at the time, but you still went ahead and did it. So tell me what why? <laughs> Why? <laughs> Very simple. I, I was I was sitting at the dining room table doing my homework, and my father was at the table, and and I started saying, I "Wonder what I should be when I grow up." And my father said, "Why don't you become a rabbi?" And I said, "Oh no, they'll never take women." And he said, "Oh no, I think things are changing." And so he took me to meet with the new chancellor of the Jewish Theological Seminary, Gershon Cohen, and Gershon Cohen was also optimistic the things are changing. So that's how it came about. Now, honestly, I love what I do. I'm very happy to be a professor. And I think the truth is, if I were a rabbi, what I would really want is to be a Hasidic Rebbe. That's not going to happen. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I'm not sure I would be happy 
um, as a conservative rabbi because, in fact, um, I grew up uh, Orthodox and went to an Orthodox synagogue, which is how the service of the seminary always was. Uh, I felt it was a bit dry, um, but um, I now attend, I belong to an Orthodox synagogue, and that's where, uh, yeah. <laughs> but I also think that um, what, it be, what does it mean to be a rabbi? And that's the bigger question. What does it mean to be a rabbi? And when are we being, shall we say, rabbinical or Rebbe-like? And I think it comes, for example, in caring for people, in getting involved when somebody has a problem, uh, and not being casual about it, but the engagement, the help. I think being a Rebbe is also transforming people. I had an experience once in East Germany in 1986, an audience that was not very receptive to hearing from a Jew and hearing about the Shoah. But at the very end, something happened. I was with a Protestant pastor, Reiner Graupner, and the audience was transformed. I can tell you more specifically what happened. It, it doesn't matter, but I think that to be a Rebbe is also who, someone who can soften hardened hearts, who can open up people's hearts who can turn a hard heart into a heart capable of dignity, which means conveying dignity to others. So that's really what it means to me. Yeah, I, I think that despite your, what, what, what will I be when I grow up? I think I'm going to be a rabbi. I think from my perspective, you're exactly who you were meant to be. <laughs> Full stop. <laughs> Thank you. Full stop. So um, how do you, you know, you mentioned about women briefly, and now speaking of, you know, what your father had said that he had hope about um, women being able to be uh, rabbis, and even the head of the JTS said the same thing. But you also mentioned that you are, you're Orthodox. So how do you feel about the progression of women's roles within Orthodoxy? Because we know there has been some movement in, in, in roles around being a rabbi am I even I know I'm, I'm sounding like I'm a little muddled but I think you know what I mean <laughs> yes. yes yes there are women now who are orthodox rabbis and who are also advisors on issues of halakha now I, I just have to say that one of the differences for me is that in an orthodox synagogue yes there's a mechitza but it's visible and everybody acknowledges that it's there and the discussions about women's issues are vibrant Whereas in a conservative or reform congregation, there's no mechitza, but actually there is often a mechitza. It's just invisible and no one acknowledges it. So for instance, when I was um, at a conservative synagogue, I noticed that uh, for Kol Nidre, there were only men who were up on the bima holding Sefer Torahs. And I asked, what, where, what about women? Why only men? They said, oh, well, we asked some women from the congregation. And they said, oh, no, ask my husband. I pointed out, if the women feel uncomfortable, then the synagogue has a problem. Then you have to address this. And I've seen this, by the way, now that we have Zoom uh, at some conservative synagogues, again, when it's only men, older men, younger men, only men up on the bima when they gather for one reason or another. Uh, So I don't think the problems that women face are necessarily worse in an orthodox setting than in a conservative. Uh, I think the problems are still there and frustrating and aggravating and annoying, yeah. whether yeah. I'm in an Orthodox synagogue, conservative or reform. Uh, 
Absolutely. And I also know from women rabbis, <clears throat> the problems that they face, they may be ordained rabbis, but the harassment is still there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because I um it's funny that you should say about the invisible mahitsa because I do feel it when organizations or synagogues will say, oh, we're egalitarian, we're egalitarian, and, I, and I'll go and I'll say, but how do you say you're egalitarian? And I don't see a single person, a single woman participating in services. It's no, you're not. <laughs> like, no, you're not. You know, right. I, look, I look at your board of directors and it's like, where are the women? Um, you know, talking out of both sides of your mouth. Um, maybe it's that, you remember I talked about being obvious and being polite. You know, you still have these issues that are just, that are there and you're just not addressing them. In fact, I would have more respect if you said, we are egalitarian, but we're really struggling to get there, but we would like to get there and we're struggling to get there. We need help or whatever. Own it. Own right. it. Yeah. Right. Yes. So that that's the key. Um, so, yeah. So I, I really did want to know about your rabbinical, uh, your, your, uh, your aborted rabbinical journey because <laughs> it was <laughs> aborted by the JTS. Because <laughs> what would you have done if they said yes? What would I have done? Uh, that's a good question. I'm not sure. I might have gone as the rabbit and I might have. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you know. It's hard to say, but I, I really do love what I do. And, yes. and, so. and it shows. It shows. <laughs> it, it absolutely shows. So speaking of what you do, um, what is your latest? I know you do so much. So it's probably one of those questions is like, what do you mean? What is my latest? I'm working on multiple things. But what is your what is your passion? Well, uh, so with COVID, um, being at home and not traveling, I had a bit more time to write some articles and I'm glad about that. And um, I have quite a few things coming out. Um, I wrote an article about Mein Kampf as a, as a Bildungsroman, the way he, Hitler gets people to, to join him in becoming, uh, in the process of becoming an anti-Semite. That was interesting to me. I also wrote an article about Jews who had converted to Christianity. And after September 1941, when all Jews had to wear a yellow star, they went to church where they had gone every week for their whole lives. And all of a sudden they were excluded and kicked out of the choir and weren't supposed to take communion. So that was another issue that um, that interested me. But then um, I also became interested in Jacob Emden, an 18th century Orthodox rabbi who lived in Altona, which is today part of Hamburg, but then belonged to Denmark. And he was a very progressive thinker who wrote about Christianity and Islam in very uh, friendly ways. And I found even more open than, let's say, the thinkers of the 19th century. And so I just finished that. And now um, I'm writing, uh, I've actually just making final edits of a book that I'm writing together with Sarah Imhoff, who teaches at Indiana University, uh, called Jewish Studies and the Woman Question. It's a feminist critique of the field of Jewish studies with quantitative data, but also um, analyses of the kinds of issues that are raised in Jewish studies and also about the sexual harassment that goes on in the field. So um, okay, that's, that's coming out hopefully wow. in the year. 
I look forward to all of that and to, to, I guess, to say you're busy is really, that was a gross understatement. Um, so it definitely was. Um, Susanna, we have some questions, if you don't mind. I, I'll read them out loud. Um, so we have a question. Is there a parallel between 19th century Jewish thinkers who wanted Judaism primarily as a religion separated from peoplehood and the American reform slash conservative rabbis in the 21st century U.S. similarly seeing Judaism separate from peoplehood in Israel? Well, actually, I think it's um, that's the conventional picture of the 19th century. I think it's more complicated than that. Uh, that is when I wrote a book about Abraham Geiger, who was a 19th century a historian and also one of the leaders of what became Reform Judaism. And he um, he didn't reject Jewish peoplehood as such. He rejected Jewish nationhood. That is, he said the Jewish people were actually given a genius for religion that stands at the foundation of Western civilization. So there is a sense of Jewish peoplehood, but nation is something different. And that had to do with the politics of Europe in general, the French Revolution that said to Jews as an individual, as individuals, everything, but to Jews as a nation, nothing. In other words, if you're going to be part of the French nation, you can't also claim to be a Jewish nation. And the argument was often made, if Jews are a nation, then how will they fight in the military in defense of France against a German army that has Jews in its army? Will a Jew, a French Jew fight against a German Jew? Where's the commitment? So that was a political problem that was foisted upon Jews, but the sense of people is something different. In terms of today, I don't see reform and conservative Jews rejecting Jewish peoplehood as such. I do see some of those rabbis very critical of, of Israel and the way Zionism has come to be interpreted by um, certain figures in, uh, in uh, certain Jewish leaders or certain Israeli government uh, figures. They're critical of that. But I don't, I don't hear them saying we are not a people uh, as such. And I, I actually would say that even those who are critical of Israel are not opposed to Zionism necessarily. They're opposed to the way Zionism is interpreted by certain politicians. And let's face it, Zionism, and I, I, I actually did a video of five lectures on the history of Zionism for Hadassah. Zionism is multifaceted. There are many ways and many different kinds of Zionisms in the plural, cultural and political at all ends of the political spectrum. So there, it isn't singular. At the moment, we have a certain kind of government in Israel that's come into power and that will change. Um, I'm not happy with that government. I'm not happy with most governments in the world, but uh, I, I think that will, that will change. And I think that a different kind of Zionism will come to uh, expression in the Israeli government in, in the near future, I hope. Um, there is an interesting question about um, your father's students. So how do you explain or understand your father's students who are politically conservative, i.e. Byron Sherwin, Samuel Dresner, Seymour Siegel? Yes, uh, and I could add to that Fritz Rothschild, for instance. Mm -hmm. My father was very kind to people and always tried to help people. So he helped Sam Dresner with the dissertation. Uh, he helped um, Seymour get a job and Fritz get a job. And Byron uh, went through rabbinical school and didn't do a dissertation with my father. My father was very kind always to these students. But of course, he was appalled. In fact, wrote a letter to the editor of the New York Times 
uh, during the um, fall of 1971 and the presidential election uh, the, between McGovern and Nixon, uh, saying very explicitly that he disagreed with his students who were supporting Nixon. Uh, certainly Fritz Rothschild, who said some pretty horrible racist things, for example, was somebody my father, uh, although he felt sorry for Fritz and what he had endured during the Second World War, my father would absolutely repudiate that kind of racist attitude and tried to convince his students. As Sam Dresner led the charge against ordination of, of women and of gay, gay men and lesbians uh, in the conservative movement. And no, that wasn't my father at all. Uh, but he didn't, um, he didn't kick them out, so to speak. Uh, he still tried to, to talk, to convince. But the idea that my father, had he lived longer, would have become a right-wing Republican is nonsense. It's a self-serving, ridiculous claim that people like to make. Okay, so uh, we have time for one last question, but I have this feeling it's not a five minute answer. Um, it was a comment about um, the Abraham Peace Accords, because you did mention it, um, with that normalization between countries. Um, where were you going with that? Do you think it's, I have my views on it, but I want to hear your views on it. Do you think it's moving in the right direction, a positive development based on the work that you do? So what are my objections? Let me first say, by the way, in general, when there are ecumenical efforts and conferences and so forth, it's always men. Uh, and uh, I think the agenda for interreligious inter dialogue has to change for the 21st century. And I'm giving a lecture about that in Baltimore in two weeks. But beyond that, I'm concerned that the Abrahamic Accords are, are really about government negotiations for the benefit of big corporations, for people, for billionaires to make more billions. Uh, and that this was a chance for certain companies to expand their economic interests, business interests. Uh, why do I object to it? Because many of these countries are not countries that I respect uh, for the treatment of their own citizens and for the migrant labor that they employ at a very cheap, um, uh, in a very cheap way and mistreat. And I'm thinking here of the UAE among other of the Gulf states. Uh, I'm thinking about Modi uh, from India and the arrangements he's made and Orban as well. I don't understand what it means for the Prime Minister of Israel to shake hands with Orban, who's unleashing some horrific anti-Semitism, which by the way, once you unleash it, how do you ever take it back? How you do you know that expression? It? You can't put the genie back in the bottle. Right. <laughs> so I'm, I'm very concerned about that. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't like to see Israel engaged in uh, relationships with what I consider to be quite unsavory uh, countries and governments. That's, I believe, a big mistake. And that's what my father used to say, Israel doesn't overcome Galut exile. Israel at times is still stuck in Galut. Uh, and this kind of um, arrangement with a, an unsavory government for the sake of making money, that's Galut, that's a Galut mentality. Uh, and you may be aware of the New York Times and Washington Post and other newspapers have written about this NSO Israeli company that has followed the Israeli government let's say to India, to Hungary and so on, to sell spy spyware, it's called, equipment 
for the governments to spy on its citizens. That's not right. Does, does Netanyahu make an arrangement with Orban just for the sake of certain Israeli companies becoming more wealthy? Uh, I find that very distasteful and disheartening as a Jew. Okay. Wow. Food for thought, everyone. Food for thought. So, um, Susanna, thank you. Thank you. It's great thank to you. you, Rivka. Oh, you, you know my heart. It's still, I had to overcome my nervousness because I think you are so awesome. <laughs> From the first time I heard you over a year ago to now and forever. So thank you so much for agreeing to be my guest because as soon as when Limud had asked me about doing a podcast and I said, well, just let me know who's there. And I don't even think we made it through the names. As soon as I heard your name, I'm like, no, that's it. Susanna, Susanna, that's it. Full stop. So thank you so much. I, I really appreciate this. And may you continue to do that wonderful work that you do. And Rivka, thank you. Thank you for the work that you do for your podcast and for your great moral spirit. Thanks for listening to Rivkush at Limud. Thank you to Limud for having us. Our producer is Michael Freeman, music by Westside Gravy, and I am Rivkush. If you enjoyed this episode, you can hear more at thecjn.ca slash Rivkush and support us by subscribing. If you want to support the CJN, join the CJN Circle. You get quarterly magazines, invitations to live events, and a weekly printable edition. Learn more at thecjn.ca slash circle. Thanks for listening.